From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, August 20th. Today, I'm joined by Impact Alpha contributing editor Imogen Rose-Smith and fellow Roundtable regular David Bank to talk about ESG, whistleblowers, and Imogen's latest column. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And hi, David. Hey, Brian. Hey, Imogen. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. The Taliban's rapid takeover of Afghanistan left agents of impact inside and outside the country scrambling for security for their families and their teams. The handful of private equity and impact funds in the country are watching warily. One company, Rumi Spice, which was founded by U.S. Army veterans, continues to work with farmers to harvest saffron and other spices. Carbon prices in Europe, California, and other areas are trending upward. This has some fund managers snapping up carbon credits and allowances to hedge corporate demand. Impact Alpha enlisted one such investor, Edwin Datsun, for a carbon markets primer. But what's happened is every year that number is kind of coming down. And then suddenly we're at a point where you hit that inflection where the supply demand flips. And then the price, people start suddenly realizing there will be what not only will be scarcity this year, but that scarcity will get worse and worse and worse. And then that really drives the prices up. The digital bank Aspiration will go public via a merger with a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC. Aspiration plans to launch new financial products that they hope will help customers offset their carbon footprints and help companies advance their net zero goals. Pacific Community Ventures takes a hard look in the mirror. The CDFI that's Community Development Financial Institution, found its underwriting practices were rejecting too many loans for diverse-led businesses. In her guest post on Impact Alpha, Pacific Community Ventures' Bulba Gupta called on other CDFIs to root out misperceptions of risk that she claims are, quote, rooted in systemic racism. Restrictions on rent hikes are expiring on hundreds of thousands of units of affordable housing. In response, Impact's community capital raised $210 million for short-term bridge loans so that owners can seek longer-term financing and government subsidies to preserve these affordable units. And finally, tech investor Chris Saka raised $800 million for his lower carbon capital fund. Saka, an early investor in Twitter, Uber, and Instagram, says there has never been a better time to start a company focused on emissions reduction. Impact Alpha subscribers got these and many more stories each morning this week. Uh, Now it's time for this week's featured conversation. I'm joined once again by Imogen and David. Imogen, your institutional impact column this week called out the plight of ESG whistleblowers. Who's blowing the whistle on what and what's happening to them? All, All good questions. Based off conversations that I had both before writing this column and after writing this column, I think that it actually struck a nerve with a lot of people in the ESG community because there are a lot of people in ESG roles, both asset managers and allocators, who effectively find themselves being the sort of moral compass of an organization, right? Like not because that's what ESG is, but because when you start talking about a lot of these issues, they 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 start falling into things like ethics and values. Um, and you have a lot of organizations which 
want to be seen to be doing the right thing when it comes to ESG. But oftentimes, you know, sometimes because they're just bad organizations, sometimes because they're just not there yet, the rhetoric doesn't catch up with the reality. And so there's this real tension and it falls on the ESG person to have to navigate that. And sometimes that results in them being fired or sidelined or having to leave because if they stay, they're effectively tacitly endorsing behaviors that they don't necessarily support. So the the current example of that is the head of global sustainability at DWS, who is claiming that uh, Desiree Fixer, who is claiming that she was fired for speaking up and saying that DWS actually wasn't walking the walk on ESG investing. Now, this is part of a larger blowback against ESG and by extension, impact investing. So what is the criticism here, David? Yeah, I mean, you know, what Imogen was describing was a a whistleblower who said uh, an asset manager wasn't doing as well as they said they were on ESG. There's a broader criticism that says ESG itself is suspect. And um, there's a former sustainability uh, manager at uh, at BlackRock named Tariq Fancy, who's been getting some play for saying ESG, in a sense, is like a placebo. I think he called it a deadly distraction that delays the kind of reforms that will actually affect the real world. The notion is that, you know, just simply picking stocks on the basis of their, uh, you know, maybe box ticking on, on environmental and social factors by corporations isn't going to get the kinds of changes on climate and and, and diversity inclusion that that the world needs. Um, his other quote was that it's like, it's like giving wheatgrass to cancer patients. It sounds good, but doesn't do anything. And I will say that there's kind of a, you know, ESG is kind of at a crossroads. For years, um, the proponents, you know, fought off the skeptics who said, you know, you couldn't make any money or you'd be taking a, a discount by paying attention to environmental and social factors. And so all of the uh, the defense of it was, oh, no, you can, you know, it can be a good investment strategy. Now it's on the other side. Oh, it might be a very good investment strategy. Billions of dollars are flowing into ESG. ESG funds have, have done well. There have been some ups and downs, but have done well through the pandemic. Now the, now the criticism is, oh, it doesn't amount to any real impact. Right. And so there are... In, in between are these insiders, the, the people who are running sustainability or ESG initiatives within these firms who are kind of caught uh, uh, between these two forces where they, they you know, want to be able to leverage their, their position to have an impact, but they also don't want to uh, be seen as greenwashing um, efforts that, that don't live up to their own personal standards. So, so Imogen, what do you think needs to be done to, to address this? I do think that these are two different issues. There's the issue of ESG generally doesn't work or doesn't achieve what it says it does, and that corporations are doing ES effectively doing ESG wrong and lying or being not transparent in their approach and you know in an even more extreme case scenario something like a barrage esg is being used as you know effectively a fig leaf to cover up alleged fraud and other misdeeds right 
and or you have a corporate culture where you're going around saying, oh, we care about everyone. And then you're actually like bullying everyone and harassing them and doing other terrible things. You know, I think the question of, you know, is ESG going to solve the world is important, but not that interesting. Obviously, ESG is not going to solve the world. Obviously, we need to change our behavior. Like ESG, if you just say, oh, well, we're going to index everything and ESG, you're not actually changing behavior, right? So we need to fundamentally shift how we apply capital and how we change our behavior. And ESG doesn't do that on its own. But I think the much, it's much, so it's easy, relatively easy to blow the whistle on ESG. It is much harder to blow the whistle on companies or investors that are practicing ESG and using it to effectively hide other behaviors. Um, and I think what happens over and over again is that the ESG person finds themselves in that moral dilemma and in the process of taking a stand, as I say, gets railroaded in some way. And I don't like, I don't know how we fix that unless you say you make ESG a legal function, right? Like when does something go from being an ethical dilemma to a legal dilemma and what steps do you take to enforce that? The very fact that ESG disclosure has become something that companies, you know, think it's worth being fraudulent about, you know, if I can put it that way, is a sign of the rising importance of that, both for investors and for companies and, and, and otherwise. So, so to the broader criticism of ESG, I would say, yes, of course, it doesn't get us all the way to, to, the, to the changes we need, but it raises the topic to the point where the scrutiny, the measurement, the disclosure, the transparency sort of matters in a, in a material way, both at a legal, as legal sense and a, and a financial sense. And so therefore, the scrutiny is heightened. And now people look at it and say, are you really doing ESG? Are you really doing impact? Are you really having it? And that's where I think the DWS case is going to be really interesting, right? Because they were disclosing all of this ESG stuff in their annual report, right? If they if they're not actually doing any of this, you know, at what point does that become a matter for the SEC? At what point does that become securities fraud, right? Like, that's not what's being alleged. But like, at some point, if the if you're disclosing this within a regulatory environment, that and and you're you know not telling the truth, there there should be consequences to that. Right, and Imogen, as you said in your column, there are currently no universal disclosure standards or mechanisms of enforcement or oversight on ESG issues. Now that may be changing. We, you know, we, we do know of regulations coming out of the European Union and the UK and the US, uh, or at least talks about different regulations that uh, essentially are trying to ensure that if you say you're doing sustainable investing, if you say you're doing ESG, uh, that you actually have the goods and the data to back that up. But I'm, but I'm not even sure you need to go into that much minutiae, right? If I'm saying in a disclosure, disclosure that 50% of my assets are subject to an ESG screen, and that's not true, then I don't need European regulation to tell me that that's not true, right? The only question would be, does anyone really look or anyone really care? Like, does it, and to David's point, does it have a material impact? Does it materially matter if I say 100% of my assets are ESG screen, and that's not really true? One of the things that's interesting in the distinction between the DWS case, as you say, and the Abraj case, which is this 
private equity firm that uh, you know, sort of notoriously unwound uh, last year or a couple of years ago. Um, but that was over financial fraud. That was over, you know, mingling of funds and, and, and misuse of, of funds. No one called out Abraj, um, at least at the time, for not living up to their very lofty impact objectives. They and called them out for good, right? old, good old fashioned financial fraud. Because you could have just looked at the investments. Like, I don't understand why anyone doing due diligence abroad wasn't like, hey, you know, how is this company doing, you know, this, like, you know, yogurt company in Turkey or wherever it was? Oh, seems like things aren't going well, right? Like, I don't understand why people were so willing to sort of take Abraj's word for it, except for the fact, again, to this point, like everyone was so desperate to have a success story. Everyone is so desperate to have like a Harvard business case study on how awesome this is that again, there's not much support. And I mean, again, this is, I mean, you ask what we could do. This is part of it. There isn't much support from the impact investing community necessarily for whistleblowers. Um, and there is still sort of like a lot of incredulity, right? And I think that we can do a better job of, of looking under the hood and, and asking hard questions of people in the community, right? Where, you know, it's sort of like when your back brain tells you that there's something wrong, there's normally something wrong. Well, yeah, as you said in the column, and I'll say it again here, any whistleblowers who want to come forward and have a forum to air out their issues and with appropriate safeguards for the, for their own um, safety and 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 whatnot um, should come to Impact Alpha and we'll we'll work with them um, to 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 get those stories out. All right. Well, I think that that's a good place to leave it for this week's conversation. Thank you so much, Imogen, for your really uh, important and powerful uh, column. And thank you, David, for your insights as always. Thank you both. Yes, thank you, Imogen, for this column and for all your columns, which have been really standout. So um, really appreciate your uh, taking on the institutional impact mantle. Thank you. It's, it's, it's been fun. That's going to do it for your impact briefing this week. More all day, every day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief newsletter. Podcast listeners get $100 off their first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Until next time, take good care.